Welcome along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Nell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain and behavioral sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. I'm delighted to welcome to this episode of Brain for Business, Brain for Life, Robert Arell. Based in Stockholm, Robert is an internationally sought-after trainer, speaker, workshop facilitator and expert in the field of radicalization, disengagement and intervention. Robert has two decades of experience in the field of disengagement and exit work and has led exit programs in Sweden and the USA. Since 2011, Robert has been a member of the steering committee of the European Commission's Radicalization Awareness Network and he currently works as an independent expert, consultant and trainer in the preventing and countering violent extremism field. His recent work focuses on setting up EXA programs, online counselling in EXA work, and advising on policy guidelines and recommendations. Robert, you are very welcome. Thank you very much. My pleasure to be here with you. Well, perhaps we might start then, if, if it's okay, by getting you to tell us a little bit about your own background in terms of the sorts of things we'll be talking about today. Mm-hmm. For sure, uh, and my my personal background is um, I um, I'm born and raised in Stockholm in Sweden. Uh, I joined myself involvement in violent right wing extremism during my teens, and I I think the background for this was a few different factors that that affected that type of choice uh, in life. I um, I had really primarily trouble in school. I um, uh, started off with with uh, redoing uh, fifth grade, uh, going to special teachers, uh, being in, in special classes and, and getting all types of, of interventions, but but simply just not really uh, feeling that I, I managed or that I um, um, succeeded or grew very well there. So I, I think that's really one of the main focuses that I, I can identify when I look back on my life and I analyze what is it that made me go into a uh, at all uh, some type of, of diverted um, um, track of, of development. I, I think what, what happened also was um, parallel with this going into teenagehood with all of what that means in terms of building identity and shaping who you are, uh, the social networks and, and friendships. I, I had some experiences uh, in, in my schools of conflicts where I felt that I didn't really trust the, the, the adults around me to help me or sort me or uh, it, it, it escalated into to frightening or difficult situations. So I think with, with these different aspects affecting my life, I was really open for looking at at a different way of building identity, where I went into different subcultures. At first, I went into uh, a music type of subculture, so death metal and black metal, which is really angry and, and, and dark music, which I think really mirrored my emotional status at that point. Uh, it, it's a lot about evil and darkness, and I, I have black clothes, and I, I painted an upside down cross on my jacket, and and uh, and was really attracted to that type of, of 
messages or um, uh, kind of mood. Uh, I, I think once again, it really reflected my internal uh, mood at that point. Uh, and I noticed that this was also a way to to get attention and to build identity and to kind of form who I was. All of a sudden, I could connect with people through music and 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 build something new or different from from who I was before. So it was very important for me during this time. And later on, I I also got involved in in football supporter groups where it was I think a really uh, a very strong emotional experience to be part of a of a mass of a, a large group of thousands of thousands of people on the stadium and we were singing together and it was this uh, very strong sense of unity and community and comradeship that that all of a sudden formed quite easily uh, and and just by being true to the team colors and cheering for the team it, it you, you were immediately accepted but it was also the side of of the macho tough guys who don't back down and who who are going their own path in a sense and and who are in for the the rush of the fights and the adrenaline and and this type of things which, which also attracted me at that point because i i had a lot of uh, frustration and anger primarily because of the the failures in school that I, I you know as, as a child as a teenager you you're not really able to verbalize or or put together what's happening you're just experiencing it so i was looking for ways to to uh, channelize or manage all these difficult feelings and experiences so joining the football supporter group was was uh, for me a, a a really big change and and there i i got in touch with uh, groups and ideas, uh, propaganda from the far-right uh, extremist environment, which added, I think, for me, a new layer. Uh, and the layer of not just being part of a group, not just being uh, the us against them, but but the sense of superiority, that I wasn't just good enough, I was superior to others. And with my self-esteem from from school failures and, and the school situation just didn't really become very much better. I, I, I redid fifth grade, I changed school, I, uh, I uh, uh, moved up from uh, eighth to ninth grade because the teacher thought that might motivate me to be more active in school. Uh, they made lots of different interventions during eighth and ninth grade and it, it just simply didn't really help because what what showed was that late ninth grade my parents sent me to a special teacher who identified that i needed glasses uh, so may uh, a month before finishing ninth grade uh, 15 years old i i got my glasses and this is what i needed all these nine years to to be successful i think this this these experiences was really frustrating and i, I needed in a sense um this this channelizing this you know how, how how can i manage this what can i where can i put all this and joining then the far right the the, the white supremacy ideology and group i mean it, it just it for at that point for me it, it just um, really felt very fulfilling to join a group that helped me to uh, build an identity of being not just good enough but even superior and where all my frustration could be channeled into 
to the ideology, which really clearly told me what was right and what was wrong and who were the good guys and who were the enemies and what we should do. So very kind of black and white, simple, packaged, uh, not, not so much to kind of think about or process. So I think that's really my way into the environment. And once I was active, I was, I was involved for several years, which was quite a chaotic period of a lot of, of drinking and, and fighting on town, a lot of manifestations and, and activities. With my glasses, I started to read a lot of the right-wing extremist propaganda, so I got informed about the ideology and, and um, uh, participated in, in meetings and demonstrations and all kinds of things, which, which just simply helped to cement the identity of myself as as part of of this movement, um, everything is related to these ideas and 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 the ideology. You, everything that you do and think of simply simply circles around the perception of the group and the ideas. So so I was involved for for quite a few years. What what then really helped me to change was that I, with my new glasses, I started to read ideology and I got informed about what, what our, what our um, political standpoints was. And, and one of the things I identified was the search for purity in body and mind, uh, a healthy lifestyle, the elitist uh, way of, of working out and, and the kind of concept that your body is your temple. So I stopped drinking and I started working out and I, I really focused on becoming this elite person that we were talking about or promoting or idealizing. And for me, what, what happened was that I, I identified that a lot of my friends around me didn't really take these steps, didn't really walk the same path. And, and this was the first, really the first instance where I started to feel doubt uh, or started to see a crack in, in this whole uh, uh, worldview and, and engagement, which was quite tough, to be frank. It was difficult to face this because I, I was uh, very devoted and, and this gave such a meaning that, that uh, being part of the group, it, it just gave such a strong sense of, of meaning and purpose and direction. So it, it was really difficult. Uh, but, but once I, I started to identify this, I realized that a lot of my friends and comrades weren't really living the ideology that we were promoting. They weren't really the, 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 the elite that we, we said we were. And, and I, I didn't really see that they would be able to um, live the life that we were promoting. So at first, I, I really started to distance myself from the movement and the comrades. Uh, and, and once that was done, it was more difficult to uphold the ideology because I, I simply didn't have this, this constant, um, this constant input or, or kind of refilling of, of ideological ideas or standpoints. So it, it, uh, it, I think, I think there really was, was start of the change. And, and the main factor that I, I think was, was leading me out was joining the military. This was something that we discussed a lot and we promoted, we, we idealized that we would get military training to be prepared for the, the coming revolution that would, 
come you know somewhere in the distant future uh, and and for me the military service was really a a way to to change i saw a, a possibility to to really disconnect from the environment from the movement or or well actually this this just simply happened naturally that i i i kept myself a low profile from the movement because i knew that the swedish defense don't really want to educate swedish neo-nazis in how to manage guns uh, so so i i kept a low profile and and i think what happened there was was then in a sense the restoration of the self-esteem so the reason why i joined the failure in school the difficulties uh, that i encountered uh, led me to seek an alternative which was the white power movement but once in the military i could rebuild a sense of competence a sense of self-esteem and and i think this really helped to to feel the need for the ideology just decreasing radically I, it just didn't really make any sense i just didn't really feel that it was was uh, uh, needed and then to meet new people and to build new social relations outside of the the environment was also very helpful and needed so i think that's really how it started and then this process usually doesn't go overnight so it, it takes a bit of, of time to to create a change and to to start changing your ideas and perception but i, I think it, it really happened gradually uh, with with meeting new people and, and starting to open up, uh, starting to look at new perspectives, uh, and and once I was in this process, I reached out to Exit Sweden, and and met somebody who had similar experiences as myself, and and that was really uh, very helpful for me to discuss with somebody who had gone through something similar, and from there on, I I simply left uh, the, the movement uh, and, and once I was done with the military I, I got an offer to actually start helping out and, and working for Exit Sweden which I, I later on did and, and worked for about 17 years to him. How then, you know, have the experiences that you describe there, how have they influenced your subsequent work? I can, I can see how a, a pathway might have happened but say when you're working with people, how does your own background and your own experiences, how do they inform your approach? I think um, when, when we look at these environments, for most people outside of these groups, it's difficult to understand how can people join these environments? How can people promote these ideas? How can people kind of choose this type of lifestyle? So having own experiences usually helps in, in a few different ways both uh, in terms of identifying with the people who we want to reach and, and help to change, uh, but also because we, we, there's this sense of credibility, of trust, that this is somebody who knows what I've gone through, somebody who can, I can relate to, somebody who, who understands where I am right now in, in what shoes I am in. So I, I think these these things really influenced the, the, the work. And we see a lot of extra programs around the world using what's usually called formers, people with own experiences from these groups uh, and, and how this helps and, and, um, and benefits the, the facilitation of, of change for people. Because when people leave these groups, they 
usually don't really trust social workers or therapists or police or, or other people in general. So helping to build this trust and to to connect with with uh, with people who have similar experiences is, is usually helpful or people who don't judge uh, and have a non-judging uh, attitude. It struck me when you were describing your own background that rather than your entry into radicalization being one big single event that that sort of changed your your view or your perspective it it was actually more of of a pathway an accumulation of little events that kind of perhaps were related but inevitably built upon each other is that a common uh way of of, of entering into radicalization that you've seen with the people that you work with I, I think so actually we we meet very few people who uh you know who read mein kampf and, and think that this is this is the way to go this is what i want to do or who who wake up one day and, and feel that they want to engage in these type of environments but we we much more often see people who have experienced a lot of different uh, events in, in life and and a lot of experiences that leads them into different choices where the, the radicalization is, is one element of all of this. Uh, people who experienced uh, being victims of crimes or bullying or school failure, uh, family difficulties, uh, in a sense, searching for belonging, uh, safety, uh, security, and, and quite often the sense of revenge, of, of being powerful. Um, and this, this, if we look at the research for radicalization, there's a lot of, of really good studies out there from um, looking at, at radicalization to violent right-wing extremists or violent Islamic extremists or other similar type of groups. And, and usually they, they identify that it's a process and that there's more different factors that, that play a part when people radicalize. Uh, so, so it it's it can be quite complex and and not as you said it, it's not a, a single single event um, that triggers people to join these groups. And would you say then that some people are perhaps more susceptible that, than than others in terms of radicalization? I think you know if you were to to look at a population of people, could you say? those certain people might be more susceptible because of demographic factors or or other experiences or is it a bit more random and unstructured than that mm -hmm. I, I think what we can what we can quickly identify is that most people don't radicalize uh, and, and most people who experience difficulties in life don't radicalize into extremist groups but what might be helpful is to look at at risk or or protective factors and to see how they play a role. And, and we can see that if there's more risk factors activated and less protective factors uh, available in combination with that these groups are, are within reach in a sense that you meet people in these groups or you consume the propaganda and you feel that there's something in here that, that seems, uh, that seems uh, you know, attractive or, or explains things for you. These these type of factors usually uh, affects stronger. So looking at the risk factors and, and protective factors, risk factors can be 
um, as we mentioned earlier, vulnerabilities of different kinds. Uh, for myself, school failure, it can be difficult with social uh, social relations or being victim of different type of difficult or, or traumatizing events. And, and then in, in combination with closeness to, to getting in touch with these groups. And does that vary then in your experience across different forms of, of extremism, you know, between right-wing extremism, Islamic extremism, other, other forms of, um, of extremism that, that might be out there? I, I think that we can identify some similarities here, really. So, so the search for meaning, belonging, and significance, the the search of, of kind of sense revenge, uh, uh, the the um, the strong uh, community, or or usually there's the sense of the brotherhood uh, that we together we we're strong in in this group so i, I think we, we really can identify similarities but of course there's also differences uh, some of the people who join violent islamic extremism uh, have experienced discrimination uh, or racism um, and, and this triggers to 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 uh, um, kind of react in, in, a, in a not very constructive way to this whereas people who are uh, joining right-wing extremist groups might might instead have experienced of intercultural uh, conflicts or or having having been victims of crimes or similar. So there's similarities and and and, and of course a few differences when we we look at the pathways. I'm curious to to get your thoughts and and maybe it's not something you you've looked into on the the rise particularly say in you know in american politics but also more broadly of things like QAnon and and so on obviously they're slightly different to what might be seen as say some of the more traditional forms of extremism that, that we've mentioned but do they also fit within that broad umbrella of of extremist movements and extremist perspectives i i think we can look at that really if we put it in a wider perspective and we look at engagement in, in different type of, of groups, uh, there's clearly similarities between violent extremist groups and, for example, different type of cults, uh, the QAnon, for example, uh, conspiracy theories, where you have this sense of um, very strong uh, idea that that within the group you've seen a truth that other people haven't seen yet you have accessed knowledge that others haven't really accessed yet and this this uh, becomes uh, something that really fulfills people and gets this sense of almost excitement that that we understood something we have a perspective we have we have knowledge that that others don't really have and it's our it's our duty now to to share this knowledge and to spread the word and to help others to also become enlightened in in how the world actually uh, works and conspiracy theories are are a very strong part of of all the violent extremist orientations and really fill the function of explaining a lot of things that might be difficult to to explain intellectually or logically um, in these environments. So, for example, the white supremacy groups perceive the idea that, that there's a Jewish conspiracy ruling the world to, um, with the aim of um, 
um, extincting the white race. And for people outside, this might be sounding difficult to understand or, or not really credible. But what we have to understand is what function it fills for individuals in these groups. Because for them, it fills the function of understanding the world in a new way, of uh, explaining the own lived through experiences in a new light and gives directions on what can we do to change. So it, I think it, it's an important uh, uh, part of, of a lot of these groups, the conspiracy theory, the, the kind of paranoid thinking, the, the sense that we have, to, we have to change the world to make it better. And we have insights that other people have. And on that, I, I just, there's, there's um, since this is really on, on the brain and, and behavioral science that your podcast focuses, I, I thought of just mentioning uh, Daniel Kaleman's uh, research on, on the system one and system two in, in the brain, how we sort information. The system one, uh, in a sense, making shortcuts and, and processing large amount of information in a, in a, in a, in a in a quick way, and system two working on more, um, more analytic way to to process information. And I think we can look at at involvement in these groups or, or conspiracy theories or 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 these these type of uh, uh, questions from that perspective. That what these groups do is that they make you they make shortcuts. You don't really have to to explain or understand in depth because these ideas give you give an understanding of the world and, and, and kind of limits your I mean, it, it almost prohibits the 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 more analytical or, or in-depth uh, 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 capacities or, or directions in, instead giving you a fast and quick answer. This is the truth and this is what we believe in and this is the right thing, period. And that's a really interesting way to to describe it. It's it's almost helping people avoid that more uh, complex and, and contemplative system to thinking that that you refer to for, from from Kahneman, and it helps people with those sense making activities, particularly if they feel as though the world that they're living in just doesn't make sense. But mm -hmm. suddenly, someone mm -hmm. has the answer, and and, mm -hmm. and this is it. This explains it all. This conspiracy theory, mm -hmm. or, or or otherwise. On that, I you know, I, I'm not sure um, you know what it was like. Say when you were younger and and, and you were moving down down your your own pathway and on your own journey. But obviously, these days, something like social media is is all pervasive. We can't avoid it. Has that perhaps accelerated the the rise of extremism in some areas because people can now get access to different ideas and different perspectives and different answers in ways that perhaps previously they couldn't? For sure, for sure. That that's a very good point actually to to point out. When we look at, at recruitment to these groups, I mean, we, if we look at the history of, of strategies, the, the, the modern white right-wing extremist groups that, that formed in the 1980s, 1990s, they relied a lot on, on um, sending out the message and propaganda through music. So the white power music, that, that was a, a quick way to, to uh, in a sense, school their members or, or potential uh, members in, in their ideology or how they perceive the world or, or strong messages really emotionally loaded through the music. 
where we see that that from the shift of the millennium, the the online presence is is simply dominating the recruitment and 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 the ways that these groups reach out with their messages and social media uh, for sure. Uh, almost, I mean, most people are are active in different ways in social media. Uh, these groups see that it's it's a it's a fantastic opportunity to reach a lot of people with their messages, and what we see is in in some places that um, social media, with the use of of in a sense sarcastic humor or or memes, you can you can put out your message uh, or, or attract people without having them had to read long ideological text or study you know, uh, ideological literature, but instead through short video clips or through 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 podcasts or through memes or through these type of social media uh, communication, it, it's much more quicker, faster, easier to to reach out. So for for the extremist group, social media is is uh, is very valuable uh, and important to spread messages. And it strikes me as well that social media is perfectly set up for the um, the simplification of messages that you can boil mm. down messages mm. Mm. Uh, rather simplistically into very short, sharp phrases that, that seem to make sense in the moment. Yet, of course, they forget the nuance and the background that goes into them. Exactly, spot on, spot on. The simplification and, and the and the easy accessibility of this, I think that's that's really uh, points there. So, building upon what we've we've discussed, you know, you've, obviously you've talked about your your own journey. We've talked about things like social media. How then can societies, and and perhaps even to an extent, families? work to prevent radicalization in the first place so are there, are there steps that we can we can take to to just cut it off before it even happens exactly so there's there's a few different perspectives that we can look at here and i think i think we can we can categorize it in a way of of uh, uh, working with professionals and, and supporting families but also working on uh, equipping the young people that we want to that we want to work with or, or who we want to protect in a sense um, and when it comes there to the first category of, of, of the youth I, I i think it's important to work on a few different strategies or, or perspectives uh, one is for sure critical thinking and, and media literacy to understand how how does groups share messages what is propaganda how do we make decisions how do uh, how do how do people join different type of groups? How do we build identity to really inform about this to to make this available? Uh, of course, this can be a bit theoretical, or, or I mean, it, it needs to be done very practically. Um, but also parallel with this, empowering decision making and change. There's some some models of, of participation. For example, how can we make young people? Uh, more participatory about their decisions and not just passive uh, passive consumers of what other people tell them. So how do we work with decision-making and empowerment and inclusive uh, societies for young people? But in parallel with this, we, we also work with professionals, uh, teachers, social workers, therapists, law enforcement, etc., and, and with families to 
create awareness of radicalization, to inform what is radicalization, how can it manifest itself, what are the signs to look for, how do we work with this, what type of, of experiences is there to uh, work on uh, preventing engagement, how do we work with critical thinking or questioning, or how do we work with creating discussions? Because what we see is that when people join these groups, when young people join these groups, it's usually a, a, a quite um, a fast process that people go through. Once there's this this connection or this attraction to, to the ideas, it, it can go quite quickly into um, kind of consuming or, or embracing the ideas and the ideology, which for people around it is, it might be difficult to manage. We, through my almost 20 years practice, I, I work with numerous of families who were concerned over their loved ones joining an extremist groups or, or conspiracy theories or, or similar. And what almost all of them testify is that they they started to argue, they wanted to overprove, they couldn't understand how their loved ones or children were embracing these ideas. So they went to discussions, to logical argumentations, they bought books and they studied and 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 all of this is really done with with a well in in a sense of well-meaning but but we know from identity building from studying radicalization that it's usually not logical and intellectual uh, argumentation that leads to change but instead to identify what is it that what is it that uh, promotes change for for people? What is it that actually attracts people to, to these ideas? How do people get involved in these groups? And we have to address and target those factors. Uh, once again, looking at identity building, on social relations, on dealing with crisis and traumas and conflicts, and, and how can we instead work on, on empowering those aspects of young people's lives? So I think we come back to to empowering instead of, of um, telling people what's right and wrong. And is that really the key message that you would give to someone if they were concerned that their child or their partner or a family member or a friend were, were radicalized? Are they the key things that they should do as first steps? I think for, for somebody, for a family member who, whose child is, is uh, beginning to radicalize or already radicalized, my, my first advice is to, to seek help, to not stand alone and deal with this, because this is usually very difficult. It's a lot of emotions, it's a lot of frustration, uh, and, and it's a lot of shame. But to break this stigma and to instead seek... Uh, seek advice from other family members, from trusted friends, from professionals, um, and, and not kind of stick, stick with the situation all alone. That would be my first advice. And the second is really to look at, at com communication strategies that's non-confrontational. How do we create change without confronting people that they're wrong? I mean, we, let's think of people who, who smoke. And when other people tell them that it's bad for them, that usually doesn't lead them to stop smoking because we know that it's bad, but we, we, we don't really take in information that way. People who 
say, well, I should start working out. But, but the motivation to start working out doesn't come just because the thought is there. There's so much more that is needed when we look at motivation and, and facilitating change. So seek help, uh, go into non-confrontational discussion, be curious and try to understand what is, is happening, what is the attraction, uh, and, and try to, to manage it together with, with others. Okay. Robert Arell, thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. My pleasure, Laurie. Thank you very much for inviting me. Electronic Beat Time and Dream Sequence by Lorenzo's Music is licensed under an attribution share and share alike license.